we've known um, for nearly 35 years. It's been as clear as daylight with the World Health Organization announcing in 1988 with their first report on, on the topic, but it's been known before that. And yet, it's not on alcohol containers. It's not on. It's people aren't really what well, people don't know. Um, I'm sure, sure in South Africa there's a knowledge deficit. We talked about the alcohol deficit, but there's several knowledge deficits. But this is a, one that screams out for attention that alcohol causes cancer, many types of cancer. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 109. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Absolutely. And I've found my people. I really have. It's my family. Tribe Sober, the, well, it was the WhatsApp. Now it's gone to Slack. But that's my first go-to in the morning. Uh, It's my last one at night. And I really feel for these people, for all of them, you know. We really are a family. We get each other. And I I know what they're going through. They know what I'm going through. Gosh, it's such a relief to have found you all, (laughs) really. So if you want to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. And in fact, it's a great time to sign up right now because during May, we're offering a 20% discount on our annual membership fee. Just insert the code AWN for annual 05-2022 to claim your discount. I'll put that code in the show notes as well. ANN05-2022. My guest this week is a senior scientist with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria in Canada. Professor Tim Stockwell is a man with a mission. He wants to inform people about the link between alcohol and cancer. He's been working tirelessly towards this goal for years. The fact that alcohol is one of the top three causes of preventable cancer is not exactly a secret but it may as well be, as so few people seem to be aware of it. Even moderate amounts of alcohol can cause cancer, and in fact there is no safe amount. So I began by asking Tim to introduce himself. Yeah, I'm now a sort of part-time scientist at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, and I was formally director there. I stood down about 18 months ago. 
Um, and I've been in Canada, I guess, 18 years now, working um, on alcohol and other drug issues to do with prevention, epidemiology, policy, a little treatment, harm reduction stuff. And I was in Australia for 16 years before that at an equivalent institute, the National Drug Research Institute, and I was the director there for the last eight years as in Australia. And I'm from the UK, as you can probably tell. I was a clinical psychologist, and then I got interested in more prevention and research policy type issues, and it seemed to be a natural progression. And nobody stopped me. I'm just a psychologist working in these um, areas. I have multidisciplinary teams to help work on projects. I'm very fortunate. I've had well-funded research centres to be able to follow my interests. Talk to us a bit about Canada and the, the drinking habits, because I know all about the drinking patterns in the UK, where I'm from, and of course, in South Africa, where I've lived for 20 years. And what about Canada? It's like troughs and peaks in, you imagine, big waves of consumption. We're on an upward slope at the moment. Every time the economy is doing well, and Canada's got a great economy, people tend to be drinking more. Um, That's a a well-observed pattern everywhere. But COVID's really given it a kickstart. So the governments have done a really great job, I think, on COVID, with the exception around alcohol policy. I think they wanted to be careful to not upset people too much, and they deemed alcohol to be essential and really expanded its availability and even reduced price in many places. So Canada's got 13 jurisdictions, uh, three territories, 10 provinces. They all have slightly different approaches and laws. British Columbia, where I live, it's the highest it's been in 20 years. And I believe that's the case for the whole of Canada. So we're catching up Europe. I mean, compared with, other, you know, the UK and Germany and yeah, those countries, we're still a little bit behind. We have alcohol monopoly. They're partial alcohol monopolies. So there's still some restrictions and controls on availability and some minimum pricing policies, not very effective ones. But anyway, they're all being dismantled and loosened and COVID's just sort of, you know, kicked the props from underneath the the structure and it all seems to be collapsing at a great pace and there's more and more drinking. Yeah, it seems to be the case in many countries, doesn't it? I came across a metric the other day that I hadn't seen before. It was uh, the alcohol deficit. I don't know if you've heard about that before, but it's apparently for for governments, if they look at the revenue that alcohol is bringing in and then they look at what it's costing them in in healthcare and the societal harm, you know, in our case, all the accidents and the the gender-based violence, etc. But if they contract trust those. Can, I was quite surprised to see that Canada is running an alcohol deficit of 3.7 billion a year. Uh, that's yeah, uh, we, that's we, a lot we, of money. That may, those may be figures generated by my institute. Uh, we run a, a cost study here and mm. we often compare the, you know, the estimated costs of alcohol with the revenue and every province and territory here runs a deficit. And that's with conservative estimates of costs, and we can't cost absolutely everything that moves. It's an important piece when people look at this from an economical perspective. And economic arguments seem to be more important often. Well, we've seen them in, yeah. in, in opposition, haven't we, during COVID? It's the economy versus public health. But in fact, you can public health can also appropriate some of those economic arguments because alcohol does cause so much damage. 
Yeah, I think it's a very interesting way of looking at it. But I imagine sometimes governments, they think the revenue and they want the revenue quickly, don't they? And then they think, well, the costs, you know, that'll be down the line when that person gets older and sick. I don't know. They find a way to justify it. I wanted to ask you if you feel that governments do have a responsibility to inform people about the dangers of alcohol. Yes, um, especially in a country like Canada. And I mean, there's a special argument in Canada. We've had lawyers who are expert in this issue look at it very closely because our governments with their partial alcohol monopolies are actually involved in the distribution and sale of alcohol to its citizens. And I mean, all governments collect revenue to run um, government affairs. So with most products, it would be, regardless of that, you'd think governments have a responsibility to the health and safety and the general well-being of the public to have laws that require producers of products that cause harm to be informing consumers if they're allowed to, if this is a legal product. The very least is that um, in, consumers should be informed. We've known um, for nearly 35 years it's been as clear as daylight with the World Health Organization yeah. announcing in 1988 with their first yeah. report on, on the topic. But it's been known before that. And yet it's not on alcohol containers. It's not on it's people aren't really what well, people don't know. Um, I'm sure, sure in South Africa, there's a knowledge deficit. We talked about the alcohol deficit, but there's several knowledge deficits. But this is a, one that screams out for attention that alcohol causes cancer, many types of cancer and a, a good proportion of them. We estimate every year in Canada, about 8,000 people die from alcohol-related cancers. And this is preventable. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, you, you talked about the number of people that died in Canada. I believe, I mean, do correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the global figure of people that die from alcohol-related causes is about 3 million. Yeah, I think it's way higher than that. I, we work with people who generate those estimates, and there's some assumptions, particularly about the um, protective effects of alcohol in moderation, which have now become outdated. And you know, I don't know if you saw about three weeks ago, the International Heart Foundation, I think it's called, put out a media yeah. release in yeah. their office in Geneva, just saying we challenge the, um, this this idea. Um, there's so many reasons to doubt that alcohol <clears throat> protects against heart disease. If you factor that in to those global estimates of alcohol's impacts on mortality, it would probably go up to four, five, even six million because wow. it, it's just a massive dampening of those estimates if you factor in from these simple, uncorrected, flawed observational studies suggesting so many people can, you know, reduce their risks if they're just light drinkers. Yeah, yeah. Totally, well, not so. There's so many reasons to doubt it. If, if the World Health Organization methods were applied to Canada, it would come to about um, five or 6,000 deaths a year. When we correct those estimates, it's about eighteen to 20,000 deaths a year um, in Canada. So it could be the global estimate, cut a long story short, is very short underestimated and conservative. 
It's so ironic, isn't it? Because when you compare that with the number of people that died from COVID, you know, which is obviously hugely tragic for so many people, but if you compare the annual deaths from COVID, annual deaths from alcohol, and when COVID happened, you know, the whole world practically closed down. We had this yes. ongoing 24-7 media. I mean, there was nothing else to watch on TV or radio. No. It was COVID, COVID, COVID. Yet we never hear hardly ever about some alcohol and the dangers. Yes, I'm sure you had cable news channels there, 24 hours, and each day there'd be accounts of how many new infections, hospitalizations and deaths. And wherever you were, it could be broken down in any way. Just imagine, I mean, alcohol is just one risk to health, but you could have had probably more alarming set of numbers each day just ticking over. Uh, But it could be, I suppose, about tobacco or road crashes or gun violence. There's there's so many issues. But I suppose, to be fair to COVID, this was something that once you caught it, well, there's still probabilities, but its effect, if it was going to be fatal or serious, was quite quick. Um, Alcohol does kill a lot of people very quickly, you know, through poisonings and accidents and injuries. But of course, many of the effects are delayed and you have to work at it quite hard to put (laughs) yourself at serious risk. But because enough people do, the numbers still overwhelm the numbers we get from COVID. So I guess it's about how rational we are, we humans, how we make decisions collectively. You know, we we have these rallies, I'm sure you've heard, in Canada at the moment. I walk around the corner, we live almost next door to our parliament building in British Columbia, and there's 5,000 people camped around there at the weekends, blaring horns with big banners saying freedom. And if you can't persuade people that all you have to do is get a free jab that's been tested so many times, they're going to be even more, there's even more opposition to policies that would, you know, affect alcohol consumption, reduce affordability and availability. So it's curious, but I think if you really boiled it down and you set somebody down and said, would you be prepared to sacrifice a little convenience of access and affordability of alcohol if you believed that it would help your neighbour, you know, if it would help your community, that more people would live. If people really got that, if they really believed it. So, I mean, we, we know when people don't know about cancer risks and alcohol, they're less likely to support policies. It's a difficult sell, but it's something we have to continue to do. Yeah. You know, on yeah. the one hand, explain the risks, and on the other hand, there are effective strategies. They aren't really draconian. It's not like, you know, there's freedom from mandates. It's not like nobody here is being made to take a vaccine. People are kind of sensitive. All they, they can't do pretty much is go into a bar or a restaurant and, and yeah. if they're not vaccinated. They can drink outside um, in some places. They can drink in parks. Some people are that... Um, it's that hard to have rules and restrictions and regulations on anything, even if it's about life and death. Yeah, I mean, I, I do obviously believe in freedom of choice, but I also think, you know, we've got to be educated. I mean, I had no idea. I got breast cancer at the age of uh, 55, you know, and um, I'm not I'm not stupid. I, I know lots of things, but uh, I had no idea that there was any link mm. between my breast cancer and alcohol. Eventually, when I, I found out, I, I was horrified because I swear if somebody had told me there was a risk, I really would have toned down my drinking. You know, I was drinking yeah. a bottle of wine a night for, for decades and I never thought yeah. anything of it. You know, I 
got the breast cancer quite badly, mastectomy, chemotherapy, you know, it was a, a very difficult year. But my oncologist at the time, I, I remember I, I said to him, uh, so do I need to go on a special diet now? You know, do I need to give up alcohol? And he said, no, no, you must go and, you know, enjoy yourself now. And there's nothing wrong with a little wine. But of course, because I was dependent on wine anyway, to me, yeah. a little wine is, oh, I'm back to my bottle of night. You know, again, that information doesn't quite seem to be uh, to be hitting where it needs to to hit. And what I do, you know, with Tribe Sober, we we run workshops, and uh, you know, we take people through the health risks, obviously. And you know, the people that come along to the workshops, you know, they're highly intelligent people. But I can yeah. see their faces when they're watching, you know, all these gruesome slides I've got. <laughs> They're really shocked. They have no idea, you know, seven different types of cancer, 60 diseases, you know, you, you know it all backwards. I, I really think at schools and at universities, I mean, here in South Africa, when we have Freshers Week, you know, it's sponsored by the liquor industry and it's free booze. So it's Same here. We have yeah. a Molson's Beer um, sponsor a whole hall of residence in the, the University of Montreal. I mean, and that doesn't just stop there, obviously, but that, that's an in, introduction to independent living and higher education is encouraging young people to get yeah. really completely off their faces. So yeah. culturally, I mean, there's a real black spot there, isn't there? Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's symbolically, I was doing a focus group with some students on alcohol labeling and cancer warning labels just last week. And uh, they were kind of saying that the absence of them is incredibly powerful. Because you would assume if there was a serious risk, you have a general yeah. feeling of trust that there are good people out there in charge. But the absence of warnings yeah. uh, is terribly powerful, articulate, eloquent. Really that uh, clip, the news clip that I, I saw you on, there was, I think it was, was it the oncologist? And he was saying that he'd bought some fishing rods and there was uh, warnings on these health, on these fishing rods, you know, about these can damage your health, you know, if you use them, if you do something with them and yeah, alcohol, nothing. But didn't you try something in Canada a while ago? And it worked quite well. And then yes. uh, the liquor industry sued whoever was doing it, yes? That was us. Uh, well, no, they didn't that sue, they threatened. Um, yeah, no, it was a colleague of mine called Erin Hoban, a, a wonderful woman in Toronto, Public Health Ontario. She and I um, conspired to do studies on warning labels, and we spent about four years designing like the perfect labels for Canada. And we tested them out on panels of people, and we determined they should have health warnings, so cancer, particularly risks people are unaware of, that they needed advice on low-risk drinking guidelines, which most Canadians hadn't heard of our national drinking guidelines, which too high, actually. We're revising them downward at the moment. And nor could they count standard drinks. So if you're going to follow the guidelines, it tells you how many standard drinks if you're a man or a woman per day or per week. And they did so they didn't know about standard drinks, couldn't define them. So the labeling was meant to back all that up. And lo and behold, we got invited by one of the territories, the Yukon Territory, way up in the northwest, in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the frozen Arctic. 
we were invited by the uh, Yukon Liquor Corporation as one massive liquor store in the capital city of Whitehorse. And they have five others in outlying areas. So we could do an experiment. We had these colorful labels. We tested them on focus groups and we got a lot of support. And they were putting warning labels by hand already on their alcohol containers in both the Yukon and Northwest Territories and Yellowknife. The government stores by hand, every bottle and can they sell have a pregnancy warning label. In the Northwest Territory, it's like the same as this US warning label, very wordy. Anyway, ours was simple, direct, impactful, had images and was supported by the chief officer, medical officer of the Yukon. Chief medical officer of the Yukon advises. And um, nobody heard about it because it was in the middle of nowhere until we ran it. And the media thought, what an interesting story. And the Yukon government put out a media release because they thought, you know, they were proud of this. And then the industry realized what was happening and bombarded the Yukon government and the liquor corporation with kind of threatening emails saying, what you're saying is false. This is false and misleading. You're defaming our product. Um, you are, <clears throat> there are a number of legal terms they use to say that what the Yukon, that they didn't have the authority. The Yukon Territory government did not have the authority to put warning labels. Only the federal government could do that. We had a lawyer examine all these claims. They're all false. But the minister came out. The, the, the reaction was after about 29 days, the cancer warning, the study was frozen because the government decided they couldn't afford to fight the liquor industry. And so they allowed us to continue the study. Three months later, we negotiated this as long as there was no cancer warning. So we, we could have the lowest drinking guidelines and the standard mm. drink labels. We carried on our study. We went back earlier than we planned because these labels there, we labeled 100,000 products were sold out of that White Horse liquor store with well, 50,000 with the cancer warning and 50,000 with low risk guidelines. So we dived back into the field. We had interviews with customers in Yellowknife, which is the control and White Horse. And we also looked at sales data. <clears throat> the net result was during the period of the study, Per capita consumption, the Yukon went down 7%. That doesn't sound like a big number. Actually, it's a huge number. Consumption very rarely changes. Consum there was a small number of products we couldn't get the warning labels on. They were weird shapes or two miniatures. They were too small. And sales of those went up by about 7 or 8%. But there weren't oh, many of people them. people thought, oh, they're, they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably, they didn't like to look at our very colorful labels, which had to be in English and French. Uh, good old kind of things by so these have to be rather large labels. Yeah, I saw pictures of them. They look great because there, there was an effort in UK a few years ago, but the the writing, the labelling was so tiny that you you couldn't read it. So I mean, it was uh, it was a bit hopeless. But you, I saw your labels; they they look great. So that's at least it's a bit of evidence, isn't it, that labelling has an impact. Yeah. And the other thing that they've they've tried in Scotland, I think, haven't they quite successfully, is the the minimum pricing. Yes. Thing to, and that tries to cut out the competition, doesn't it, from the various liquor outlets because they all go cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, I think. That helps with that. They had some very cheap products as well. There was a thing called Frosty Jacks. Prior to this 50 pence, this Frosty Jacks white cider, you, you could buy 
two litres for about three pounds, and it would be seven and a half percent strength. And it was something like 10 pence a unit. So it's like a fifth of what the current minimum price is. And people were dying. You know, they were, it was so harmful to people's bodies, highly addictive. A lot of people on the street were, you know, homeless and had severe substance use disorders, mental health issues, were drinking Frosty Jack. That, and that wasn't the, the only issue. All the modelling shows, and we've done the work in Canada. Actually, Canada had minimum pricing before Scotland, but we didn't do it as well as Scotland. And we did work on it here, finding that when you increase the minimum price, consumption goes down, deaths go down, hospitalizations go down. And that actually helped the process of getting MUP introduced in Scotland. They had a big battle, the industry with all its might, took them to court through every court in the land and, and in, through the European courts before Brexit. So it went to um, uh, the Court of Human Justice, I think it was, and they ruled that if it was proportionate and it didn't have too bad effect on trade, and there's all these trade concerns, Scotland was actually allowed to do it. So it went to, after six years of having passed a bill to say we're going to introduce, that was, the, you know, this sovereign government introduced a bill, say we're going to put MUP in the industry, stop them for six years, fought them tooth and nail through the, all the courts in the land and Europe, but eventually they prevailed. And it's working. It's really clear. Consumption went down. Um, so first of all, some prices, there's less cheap alcohol, much less cheap alcohol, and deaths um, have, have decreased. They said that severe alcoholics would be using meths and turning to hard drugs, and there's hardly any evidence of that at all. I mean, the evidence is so clear that it, things can be done, but um, when you've got the liquor industry piling in and telling you that your labels are, what was the word, defamatory they used? Yes, and misleading <laughs> and false. And yeah. they actually, I've actually got, we've got a, a journalist who's Freedom of Information to access all the emails sent by these industry lobbyists to the Yukon government. And they were very rude about me. And they're defamatory. They were defamatory about me and my colleague, well. Erin. They just said we weren't to be trusted. We were enemies of the alcohol industry. That, that um, we had already decided our results before. And actually, the truth was, I did not expect there to be impact on drinking, because all the evidence is that educational interventions are very weak. But it may be that our labels were so hard-hitting and colourful yeah. and visible. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Let's let's talk about cigarettes for a moment because I'm I'm so old I can remember when we used to smoke in the office. I, I used to work at the BBC in my twenties. We were in a big office in the basement wow. and we we're all smoking our heads off. And I remember there was a fog in there. None of us had any idea it was bad for us. And then while I was there, the news broke that um, wow. cigarettes causes lung cancer. I can still remember the shock. And we were all absolutely horrified. Because, and what had changed was that um, they'd started banning advertisements, cigarette advertisements. So that was as if suddenly the media were free to report on what cigarettes did to you. And, ah. Yeah, there's a real link there. And I had a... Oh. 
an incident here in South Africa. I met this lady that works for a glossy magazine that comes out here that's very popular with women particularly. And she'd heard about what I did with Tribe Sober. And she said, oh, you know, I think I'd like to write your story. And I said, well, go ahead. And she said, I can't because uh, 80% of of our revenue comes from the liquor industry. And then I thought about this magazine, which to me was just a women's magazine. But then I thought, oh, yeah, it's full of cocktails and pretty pink drinks. And so that's an example. You know, she couldn't write an article about sobriety and how women, a lot of women are struggling because uh, she didn't, her editor would never allow it. So that's just a tiny example. So I think the free press, well, we do, we don't. It's free from, well, anyway. But that's a lovely, clear example. Yeah. I've, I've seen it play out. I've, I've worked in places like when I was in Western Australia, the local paper ran so many alcohol ads. I remember they had yeah. a full-page one at the beginning of a university term showing a refrigerator full of beer. And it was just basically saying the, the message was, so this is what every student needs. This is, the, the, you know, when you're getting ready for your school term, this is what you need or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and anything It used to I'm, be a reading list. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But that was the implication that this is normal, yeah. it's good, and uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. But they would run very negative stories about research that I was engaged in then um, on alcohol policies and reducing alcohol-related harm. They, they really went for us. The, the, the reporters relished. Um, I mean, it was a cultural thing. I mean, Aussies love to poke fun and, you know, make people look daft if they think they're too straight, too straight-laced, whatever. So they had great fun at my expense, <laughs> or trying to. I like to think I occasionally got my own back. But, but <laughs> I think it's a good sign if they're having, having a go at you. The, the other difficult thing is um, that the liquor industry claim that, well, we, we say that people must drink responsibly and it, it's their fault, you know, if they get into trouble, don't they? And none of us know what drink responsibly is. And once you've crossed over that line to dependency, you can't drink responsibly. It's it's not physically possible. So that doesn't yeah. help at all, does it? No, it doesn't. There's also the thing, it responsibly implies that you're behaving well while you're drinking, that, yeah. that, that you're not staggering or slurring your speech. And lots of people, as I'm sure you know, can hold their liquor and feel even they're capable of driving when actually they're really impaired. And, you know, you can behave, you, you may, maybe to drink, some people can drink colossal amounts, still behave well, um, but they're wreaking terrible harm on their bodies at the same time and and potentially risking their own and others safety yeah i mean i come across people that are quite proud of the fact that they never have hangovers but i think that's a bit of a warning sign isn't it because if you're drinking a lot and not having hangovers there's still things going on there there are indeed Obviously, the liquor industry are always going to put profit before people, and they spend so much money on marketing, trillions and trillions. Is there any hope? What what can be done? Well, I think there is a bit of a tide, and sometimes things have to get really bad before they get better. And I think there may be some turning points. So Country by country, there's some interesting policies coming. So we've had Scotland's minimum unit pricing being copied in other places. So there's a massive battle, that's six years, to get it to happen. But now 
Australia's Northern Territory have done it. Western Australia is looking at doing it. British Columbia here in Canada is looking at it. You know, we have minimum pricing in most provinces. Um, BC are looking to do it properly, as is Northern Ireland and Wales. Other European countries are looking at There's big moves in Europe. I mean, I know the World Health Assembly debated, I think, uh, about two weeks ago, whether they would introduce warning labels, and it got defeated. And industry influence working through some alcohol-producing countries. The Republic of Ireland has got very tough legislation on the books. They're fighting to get that in. There's efforts through the World Trade Organization to stop, to, to, to weaken what they're trying to do, but they plan to put warning labels, including cancer warnings, and to restrict sponsorship and advertising. So it could be like the moment you described with tobacco, it could be happening bit by bit, yeah. because it's very hard to dispute. When you see so MUP is just so important, it's just like light and day before and after. You can see there's fewer people dying prematurely. There's less impact on health care services. And when it's that clear and when it can be communicated well, and we just need that work to keep communicating, I think yeah. one of the other uh, little circuit breakers here could be warning labels because even the right-wing uh, sort of populist sort of position ought to be, was for most people, is we at least inform people they can make their own choices. So when the science is so strong, it's kind of hard to, you know, resist the consumer, the citizen's right to information about their health. But my body, my choice, you know, with the COVID mm. vaccines, even even those sure. out there against the public health. Well, what about with alcohol? It's your body, your right to know. It's your right yeah. to put the stuff in there. But isn't it your right to know what it can do to you? So I think in time, it's a winning yeah. argument because the science. Yeah. And when you see, you know, there's two parts, two pressure buttons. One is the idea that alcohol in moderation is good for you. And the other is that alcohol in moderation is actually risk for cancer, even if you're drinking a small or moderate amounts. It's a less risk, but it's still a risk. You put those two together, the science is accumulating on both. And eventually, it's like a pressure cooker, I think. Something has to give. And yeah. country by country are beginning to, I think, so the warning labels and minimum unit pricing are things that got the best chance of coming in over the next 10 years. And as they do, I think it can set a whole sort of virtuous cycle in, in yeah. process. And another thing that I think is a good sign is all the alcohol-free drinks, because I, d I don't know about in Canada, that you have got them in Canada, I've heard about them. <laughs> but we've, you know, there's huge um, breweries now that they're investing a lot of money on all the alcohol-free drinks, and the alcohol-free beer is selling extremely well. I mean, I never used to drink beer, but I drink alcohol-free beer now, and so do a lot of people that I know. Wow. And I think if these big uh, breweries have, have spent money researching people's mm. drinking patterns, you know, it does imply, doesn't it, that people are looking for more healthy choices. I gave up drinking seven years ago, and there was no alternative. You know, when I went out, I just had to have a Coke or water, and that made me feel even more sorry for myself and, and cross. Mm. But in fact, um, someone that gives up these days, that they have a lot of choice. And what's, what's nice also is people are using that alcohol-free beer 
to alternate because even for guys, you know, I often think it's more difficult sometimes for guys because they've got all their mates, you know, teasing them. What do you mean? You can't have 12 pints mm. tonight, whatever they're drinking. Mm. But they, they can have something that looks like beer. And even if they're only alternating it, it can just kind of slow things down a bit. Yeah, the other part to that, which is something I've always been interested in, is the lower strength beer it's just by historical accent if you look at the typical typical strength of beers in different countries you know in germany it might be six seven eight percent in uk it used to be three and a half percent has crept up i think it's i blame the eu being in the european union we um but and in canada it's about five or six percent but it's just when you actually do experiments people don't notice if you if they're blind, they drink beer and they don't know what the alcohol content is. Exactly. They enjoy like a two and a half percent as much as they enjoy a six percent. And the only difference in these studies is the blood alcohol concentration is lower in one than the other. Um, and so you can give the moment the financial incentives are all the wrong way. Um, it seems that the high strength alcohol companies make more money from than they do the lower strength, particularly when they don't make good low. It's it's um. Catch-22, if you don't have good-tasting, low-strength drinks, there's no market for them. There's not much money to be made. So in Australia, they, they introduced um, tax incentives for low-strength beers, and it worked a, a wonder. They used to have no, no there was nobody drank beer less than 5% strength. And then they introduced this threshold at 3.8%. And when I was there, suddenly there were like 40, 50 really decent tasting beers that were 2%, 2.5%. And they, they made a point for blokes not labeling always low alcohol. They, <laughs> they, they, was a, Tui's is a beer manufacturer. And they, they, had, they used to have this 2.2% beer, and they called it Tui's Blue. I mean, blue is a kind of macho, Aussie, dinky dye, you know, the true <laughs> blue. Um, so I'll have a Tui's blue. And um, it's not, can I have a light beer, please? You know, it's yeah, sort of, exactly. it's just easier to, to, to do that. Never. But suddenly they could make more money selling lower strength beer. And MUP, minimum unit pricing, will have the same effect. It nudges people, to, uh, the producers to make better tasting, lower strength yeah. drinks they can make yeah. money out of because now the profit margins are better. Yeah, that's that's the key, isn't it? Yeah, we have uh, Bex Blue here. <laughs> oh, okay, same same deal maybe. Yeah, yeah. So the guys what, don't have to say non-alcohol beer, I'll have a Bex Blue and nobody knows. Yeah. And, that's <laughs> and it looks the same. So it maybe yeah. tastes, if it's made, it can taste very similar. Yeah, you get placebo effects. I've seen people get placebo effects and actually yeah. believe they're drunk when there's zero alcohol. There are signs, aren't there? There, there is hope. There is indeed. There's other wild, um, a wild card. You, you may have heard of David Nutt in the UK. He's yes, a psychologist who's got a, a patent on a, an alternative yeah. form of alcohol. Is he um, still working on that? Yeah, and apparently has really progressed. Um, right. And so their patent application has really moved along. And so this is something that make, gives you the similar effects to alcohol, yes. but doesn't damage your liver. And there seems to be some weird cutoff. He says it's like eating cheesecake. You have one slice and you feel full. You don't want to continue. But like you have one or two of these alternative, slightly intoxicating drinks and you really feel full and you don't want any more. That's enough. Get a pleasant buzz. And that's enough. Actually, another thing we have here are, are cannabis beverages. I mean, there are issues with cannabis. And it's not in the same league as alcohol. 
So you can buy these drinks that give you a slight buzz, but they're not damaging your liver and they're not carcinogenic. Yeah, that's yeah. that's so interesting. Uh, I'm glad that uh, Professor Nutt is still uh, working on that because his study was was brilliant, wasn't he? We we mentioned that in the in the workshop, the fact that he had all those um, other drugs stacked up yes. against alcohol, and alcohol came in at about number four, didn't it? If you counted harms to others, it was number one. Yes, exactly. I think it was harm to individual, it was number one, number four, and then number one. If it was just harm to yourself, it it was a little behind some others, but cannabis was way down anyway. Yeah. A very interesting guy. It'd be so interesting to see what the alcohol industry would do if this thing came on the market. Would they try and obliterate it, you know, like the who killed the electric car? But eventually, of course, if there's demand for it, they would have to get on board and uh, buy the patent. So David Nutt might become very rich. And (laughs) suddenly... Well, he deserves it after his his trauma of getting fired by the British government for telling the truth. Awesome. Anything else you think we should uh, mention? I think we need to be better at communicating the scale and scope of risks. And they did this with tobacco. I mean, it's the same calculation. One cigarette takes about five minutes off your life. Mm. It's the same for one drink. And it's been shown that you probably saw the studies um, showing for women, um, 10 standard drinks a week was the same cancer risk as 10 cigarettes. So 10 cigarettes a week, it's just drink one cigarette, one drink. So that could be a very effective way of communicating risk as well, showing a drink and a cigarette. These give you, these have the same risk for cancer. So I think there's whole new avenues to explore. Now the idea that alcohol is protective is seems to be seriously not mainstream. It used to be mainstream. I remember when, when I was quite a heavy drinker, uh, seeing that in the newspaper, you know, it said something about red wine is good for you because even though this study was quite a small cohort, wasn't it? Of course, the media jumped on it and said, red wine's good for everybody, let's drink lots, you know. So people like me looked at it and said, oh, you know, let's uh, <laughs> let's have another one. That idea is probably responsible for so much, you know, many potential years of life lost. Yeah. From people hearing it, not changing their drinking or drinking more, I think all over the world, that's exactly. probably been responsible, that message, for millions of people dying prematurely or getting seriously ill. Thank you so much, Tim. Let's highlight a few points from our conversation. We discussed the role of governments when it comes to informing their citizens about the health risk of alcohol, and we agreed that governments should indeed have some responsibility to inform and educate And Tim explained that the Canadian government had done a good job during COVID, except when it came to alcohol policy. They actually deemed it an essential item and expanded its availability and even reduced the price in some areas. Now, here in South Africa, our government went the opposite way and enforced several alcohol bans. These bans were implemented to clear the hospitals of alcohol-related trauma patients so that COVID patients could be treated. And it worked. The alcohol ban in South Africa was like a social experiment, demonstrating the massive harm that alcohol does, both to individuals and to society. I wrote an article listing the mind-blowing statistics from this unprecedented period in South African history. I called it, What If Alcohol Was Banned? 
and I'll put the links in the show notes. Tim explained that alcohol consumption in Canada is at the highest it's been for 20 years and that they're catching up with the UK and Europe. Canada has an alcohol deficit of $3.7 billion a year. This means that it costs the government $3.7 billion more in healthcare costs, etc., than it brings in from taxes. It's been known for at least 35 years that alcohol was a number one carcinogen, and we agreed that producers should be telling their consumers about the risks so that at least we are making an informed choice when we drink. Scotland has successfully introduced minimum pricing, although the liquor industry fought it for six whole years. Modelling demonstrates that this policy reduces hospitalisation and deaths. The official figures of alcohol-related deaths throughout the world is 3 million a year, but Tim believes that these figures are more like 5 or even 6 million. The official figures get dampened down by the outdated view that moderate drinking is good for our health. Tim maintains that the misinformation that moderate drinking can be good for you has been responsible for millions of deaths worldwide. And we agreed the irony of the fact that alcohol kills far more people than COVID did. During COVID, the whole world closed down, yet nothing changes regarding alcohol. And we wondered what impact it would have if we saw daily graphs on TV showing us deaths and hospitalizations due from alcohol, just like we did for COVID. And although it's a hard sell, there are effective strategies that could be implemented regarding alcohol policy. Pricing and availability being just two of them. Tim runs focus groups as part of his research And some of them have expressed the view that the absence of warning labels on alcohol conveys a powerful message that it's okay. Tim was featured in a Canadian documentary recently. I'll put the link in the show notes. In this documentary, we saw an oncologist who was explaining that he bought a fishing rod which was covered in warning labels, yet a carcinogenic liquid has none. We heard about a fascinating experiment in a Canadian province where warning labels were stuck onto the various bottles, quite striking labels with cancer warnings and the low-risk guidelines. And this experiment actually worked really well and it reduced consumption by 7%. However, it was short-lived and it was halted when the liquor industry bought a legal action calling the labels defamatory. We discussed the futility of being told to drink responsibly and agreed that this was just the liquor industry putting the blame on the consumer rather than being transparent about the dangers of consuming their product. In spite of all these struggles, Tim has hope. He does feel that there is a tide of change and that alcohol may finally be on its way to having a cigarette moment. We talked about citizens' rights, and of course people must have the right to drink alcohol if they wish, but they also have the right to be informed of the dangers, just like we are with cigarettes. So let me wrap up by picking out a member message from one of our chat rooms. Now some of our members go on to do the most amazing things once they get sober. Listen to this message from Jax. Good morning, my dearest tribe. I'm so grateful for all of the posts, the ups and the downs, the humour and the honesty, 
the vulnerability and the fears and hopes we all share. I'm feeling extremely sentimental today. I start my two-day, 40-kilometer desert race in a couple of hours out here in the Kalahari. I arrived a few days ago. The scenery is absolutely breathtaking. I feel alive in a way inconceivable just a few months ago. I'm now fit enough and brave enough to trek across this vast country and experience the sublime on my own. And most importantly, being sober is keeping me safe and sharp. And it's precisely because of Tribe Sober that I'm here. You've given me a life. I'd be hungover otherwise, stuck in my tiny alcohol-soaked cage. But instead, I'm having the adventure of a lifetime. Wow, Jax, that's amazing. We're so proud of you. Well done. So don't forget, if you want to join our tribe, then do it now while we've got our 20% discount offer. Just go to tribesober.com, hit join our tribe, and then use the code, which is a n 5 Every week we give away a PDF, and this week we're giving away our ebook, which is called 66 Days to Sobriety. Just email janet at tribesober.com and I'll send you a copy right away. And if you'd like to join our Facebook group, our private Facebook group, just find it on Facebook and ask to join. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. And we'd be so grateful if you'll leave us a review. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.